Okay, great. Um, so I'm really grateful for this opportunity. I know we have postponed it several times before, and now we're here. We thank God for, for this opportunity. I'd like you to start with um, an introduction of who you are and what you do. Yeah. Okay, great. So my name is Dr. Eric Ochomo. I'm a senior research scientist at the Kenyan Medical Research Institute. I'm based at the Center for Global Health Research, which is in Kisumu. And here I lead the entomology department. Um, so that's basically the department that is involved with studies of, studies of, of mosquitoes, uh, mosquitoes and other insects of importance in terms of human disease. At Kemri, the focus of Kemri is actually um, research. Um, that advises on uh, matters of human health policy in the country and so a lot of the work that we do contributes directly to how uh, malaria control and other vegetable disease control happens in the country. Does the global health research, has, um, is, it, is it in collaboration with the Camry? So that is this, that is one of the Cambry centers. So Cambry has 14 centers in in the country. This is one of the centers. So you, I, I'm sure you've seen that there's a Cambry Kisumu, Cambry Busia, Cambry mm-hmm. Nairobi. There's multiple campuses within Cambry Nairobi, Cambry Kwale, Cambry Kilifi, etc. So all of these are centers of Cambry. Have different names. Okay. And the one in Kisumu is called the Center for Global Health Research. Oh. Why did you choose to study or to, to venture into malaria control? Yeah, um, I, I want to say that this life chose me. <laughs> I'm actually a three-time graduate of Masenu University. So I did my bachelor's degree in biomedical sciences at Masenu University. I majored at that time in, in what's known as medical biotechnology. And then I did a master's at the same university. But now with my master's, I majored in entomology and uh, the science of vectors, so vector science. And then for my PhD, I did a PhD in uh, biomedical science and technology as well. At that time, my focus was on um, insecticide resistance in mosquitoes. So I've always, like, since my undergrad, I've been very passionate about uh, mosquitoes because when I was actually in my first year of school, I came to Cambridge for an attachment during the end of our first year. And I got attached to the entomology lab and I actually really, really ended up enjoying the experience and liking it. And so since then, I've I've sort of been attached to the the study of mosquitoes. And and so I've been here for since. 2005 when I first came here as an intern and now I actually um, head the department so it's been so I've sort of grown with the department uh, over this period of time and, and grown with the problems now I think it's an area that I'm very familiar with and I'm able to speak authoritatively on, on many disciplines in this in this area yes, wow. I am, um, one of the, the main motivations for working in this area is because originally I'm actually from around here. My home is, is in Oyugis, which is in Homerby County. And so I'm very aware of the burden that malaria causes in this in this environment. I have personally, of course, had multiple infections of malaria, but we have also been to our facilities and seen how much we lose children and pregnant women to malaria. Um, I see how much of an economic burden malaria is for many of the areas that, that I work in. And so it's something that I'm really determined to help improve. Um, I'm also very determined to help change malaria in, the, in, the, in this particular setting and so this role gives me an opportunity to actually make that positive impact in terms of reducing the burden of malaria in this setting. Oh, that's interesting. They say the environment also sort of shapes even a child's career. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I come from here. I am very private to malaria. I have experienced it myself. I've seen it in my family. I've lost relatives to malaria. So this is something that I live with every single day. 
Ah, okay, sorry. And if you don't mind, could you please tell me briefly about when malaria struck closer home? When I was born in 1985, I was a preterm baby. Preterm meaning that I came in at, I was born at seven months instead of nine months because my mom had a malaria infection and it was either I, I, I had to be born at that time or I'd be lost altogether. So personally, I mean, yes, malaria, malaria was literally in my origin as, as a human being. And uh, so my mother had four children, but currently I only have one other sibling, my, my younger brother. The other two were lost due to malaria when they were still very young. So I never actually got to experience um, living with them because of malaria. So this is something that I've lived with in my family. What can you say is the status of malaria, especially in the Western Kenya? So this is me quoting the Kenya Malaria Indicator um, Survey 2020, uh, which indicates that the entire country we have a we have a prevalence of malaria at six percent, but Western Kenya has an overall. Western Kenya here being the eight counties of Western Kenya, so starting down from Migori to Homabay to um, Kisumu. Siaya, Busia, Kakamega, Vihiga. So those counties put together, and Mungoma, those counties put together have an overall prevalence of 19%, which is more than three times the national prevalence. So it means that they really are high burden. Um, as of 2020, the highest burden county was actually Busia, which had a prevalence of about 39%, and Siaya was following closely at, I think, 36 to 37%. So there hasn't been another malaria indicator survey since 2020. Uh, usually this happens every five years. So that remains the official status at the moment. Though I will tell you based on data that we have, that um, at the moment, um, I think strongly that um, Busia might have improved slightly following the last bednet campaign, which distributed uh, PBO net. Uh, but, but we will wait until the next malaria indicator survey is done before we can give the official um, standing in terms of prevalence. Okay. And why Western Kenya? Is it, does it have anything to do with the lake? It has a lot to do with the lake, yes, you're right. Um, so one, the lake is freshwater. These areas are mostly lowland. So there's a lot of, um, I want to say, stagnant um, water, which provides a very conducive environment for mosquitoes to breed. Usually the biggest reason why you would see malaria in any one place is, is stagnation in water. So when you don't have a really good drainage, and especially if you think about a plateau or a flat area basically so water is not running off very quickly so you have you end up with pools of water and these are very conducive for the species of mosquitoes that, that are found in this area that's one number two there are multiple swamps multiple swampy areas especially areas along the yala river which provide really really conducive habitats for mosquitoes so because of that there is a very high population of mosquitoes in, in these areas uh, but generally areas along the lake shore will have areas that are very flat they have water they have runoffs either of rivers going into the into the lake or other sources of water and those are usually very good habitats for mosquitoes and that's the main reason why we see um, a malaria in this setting one may wonder why is that not the case in every place where we have these freshwater lakes or big water bodies like Lake Trikana, other lakes in the country? I'd, I'd want to tell you that we actually have um, pretty intense transmission of malaria in parts of Turkana, especially around the lake as well, um, and in coastal Kenya as well, which are pretty flat. So areas where we have rivers and the temperatures are conducive. So areas that are nicely warm and also have runoffs of of water along lakes or major rivers 
you will actually see malaria. And that's why you see like quality, for example, like pretty intense transmission uh, in coastal Kenya. The areas around Turkana, Moyale, ETC, they have small pockets of water that actually very conducive for mosquitoes. And so yeah, it almost follows that everywhere we see um, fresh water bodies of, um, and, and, and some level of spillover, I hear that people in Mombasa don't suffer from malaria. How true is that? That's a myth. <laughs> that is a myth. People in Mombasa also do get malaria. The, the thing is, um, coastal Kenya used to have very high prevalence of malaria. But then when business started being implemented um, in the early 2000s, for some reason they had a, a better impact on uh, malaria transmission and therefore we saw massive reductions in coastal compared to western Kenya. Yeah, but, but there is still some level of transmission. Because I thought that probably it could be a matter of um, uh, maybe uh, the body getting or something to do with the body kind of coming up with a way of sort of defending itself. That, that is not really true. The, the, the thing is, provided you have malaria in circulation, you will always get people having um, developing, uh, having the parasite. So in Western Kenya, for example, even though we talk about a very high prevalence, for people who are born here and raised here, um, they develop natural immunity. And so you will, for example, go to schools in Western Kenya and suddenly you realize that kids who are in some of these places, like in Taya, for example, kids who are in primary school will have prevalences as high as 30-40%. Um, so like, what that means is basically if you go to a school in Taya, of every 10 kids you see, of every 10, 10 students, you will you'll probably have three or four of them having malaria parasites. But they're walking around, they're playing around, they're fine, they can't feel it. Because the, the, over time, because of frequent infection, they've actually developed some level of immunity. So that actually happens. That's the way the body tries to cope with persistent, persistent infection of malaria. So is that to say that the people who've been born and bred in, in these uh, malaria prevent areas like Western Kenya and some airports, of course, they can have the parasites in them, but they don't really get sick? They can actually have the parasite and not show any symptoms, so they're what we call asymptomatic. But often they will at some point have a lapse in immunity and they will get um, infections. Uh, but usually it's very common that you will see a lot of kids in this place running around but they actually have malaria parasites in them. So uh, will I be right to say that malaria in Western Kenya has not affected the children, especially their school life and their education and their day-to-day -day life because of the immunity? No, you will not. So what usually happens is that eventually they will develop. Actually, more often than not, many of them will, will develop um, symptoms. And so they'll end up missing lots of school days. Actually, in places like Teso, in Busia, and, and even in Seya, we see as many as, actually having as many as three infections in a year, meaning that in one year they will have three different infections. Um, and that is an average. In some places, that, that average is actually at eight. It means that in a, in a one-year calendar, this child is sick of malaria eight times. So sometimes they are asymptomatic, sometimes they actually develop the infection and when they do, it keeps them away from school. So there's, there's a very high likelihood that children in areas like this will miss school because of illness. Children under 5 are more likely to die but we actually even see mortality in children between 5 and 15 years of age due to malaria. And even now we're seeing it, we even see it in adults as well. So malaria 
does affect them. Malaria does does prevent their 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 active cycle in terms of them being able to attend school. And what about the adults? Um, how does Zira affect adults, uh, especially their economic life? Have you ever had a, a malaria infection? Yes, yes, I have. That, that feeling of nausea and headache—you literally cannot do anything productive during that time. Malaria is able to sustain the cycle of poverty because people are not able to work as they normally would work. Money that they ideally would have used to better themselves is spent buying medication and seeking hospital. They're wasting a lot of time in queuing and facilities trying to get care. So it does affect the productivity of, of entire community in this setting. Uh, the malaria vaccine that was on pilot for some time, how did it go? There are two vaccines now, but currently one of them is already has already received. Actually, both of them have now received WHO recommendation. The first one is known as the RTSS vaccine. The second one is known as the R21 vaccine. So uh, the RTSS vaccine was shown to reduce the chances of a child getting malaria by up to I think about 35%. The R21 vaccine is supposed to be more efficient. I think getting to as high as 80%, but I'm not so sure about the exact statistics there. So both of these are really excellent and I think that they have the chance to reduce malaria transmission. Um, there have been implementation trials uh, done in Western Kenya looking at the uptake of the vaccine, ETC. I just need to clarify that at the moment, the vaccines are given to children under two years of age. So they're usually, like the RCSS vaccine is given over four doses to children that who are under two years of age. And the reason why that happens is because the vaccine works best for people who have not been exposed to malaria. So usually that's why it's best to give it to children um, under the age of two. Mm-hmm. I think over time we will be able to see what impact it it has in terms of reducing the, the the prevalence of malaria, but so far I think um, it's probably too soon to speak of actual reductions in prevalence due to the vaccine. So let's say that there are no statistics about um, its effectiveness yet. No, there, there are statistics. From a child perspective, I think it, it's able to reduce up to 35% of, 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 of malaria infections. 35? 35, 35, yes. Uh, that's for RTSS, and I think up to 80% for R21. But in terms of actual implementation trials, actually, in terms of actual reductions in prevalence and mass, I think that we still are not able to quantify it. I, I mean, I, I could be wrong on this one, but it will take a, a few more um, years before we know about the actual impact of the vaccine in reduction of prevalence in the community. Uh, do you think the vaccine will be also be rolled out to adults, I mean, people above two years? Uh, good question. Uh, not that I'm able to respond to. Okay. Yeah, that is not that is not my forte. I wouldn't be able to respond um, correctly to that question. Okay. In the story that the New York Times ran, where you are interviewed broadly, uh, there is something that you said that was quite interesting. That we have new mosquitoes that don't wait until it's dark or it's night to bite. The ones that bite during the day. Could you please tell me more about that? Um, so I'll tell you two sets of stories, two sets of species of mosquitoes. So the first one is what's known as an awfully stiff inside. That's the one that I, I've been seeing reports on media going about new killer mosquito ETC. So this is what happened. In Kenya, we have um, four main species of malaria. Anopheles gambi, Anopheles arabiensis, Anopheles fenestas, 
and an office mirror which is restricted to the coast it doesn't move beyond the coast because it breeds in salty environment so those three are the, the most common ones across the country um anopheles gambi and anopheles fenestas are responsible for a lot of the infections and the reason why they they are is because they have a, a very strong preference towards biting humans and also a very strong preference towards coming into the house to bite humans that is why you see um there's a huge focus towards mosquito control in products that have been deployed inside the house like bed net or indoor residual spray now anopheles tifensis is a vector that used to be restricted to southeast asia and the arabian peninsula however in 2012 uh, there was a report about this vector being seen in djibouti and at that time djibouti was approaching elimination they only had about 2000 cases in the entire country that was 2012 nine years later in 2021 Djibouti is now reporting 73,000 cases. So the cases have increased and one of the major changes that has happened in the environment is the introduction of Anopheles tifensi and actually this vector has taken over in in that country. So we've seen that vector spread from Djibouti south into Ethiopia, into Sudan, into Somalia. And so as of December last year, we detected this vector in Kenya. So that is actually what the story was. Why we worry about that vector Anopheles tifensi is um as The, the other vectors that we have in Kenya right now are uh, mostly confined to the rural areas because they rely a lot on shallow breeding habitats they come into all the houses that have uh, eaves and open windows and open doors which you find mostly most commonly in the rural areas anopheles tifensi is different because it it has an, a big outdoor presence it bites people outdoors it will bite people at any time so it's very plastic in its response we say plastic meaning that it has it has a very flexible behavior it mostly prefers to bite cattle uh, and that is why it hasn't been a, a, we don't think it could be a big vector but the reason why we worry is that in the absence of cattle it's likely to bite humans a lot more prolifically and if you think about the behavior it also breeds very well in urban settings in in man-made containers so this is a, a, a vector you likely to see breeding in your tanks in your car tires in your dumped waste that contains containers so anything that can hold water and of least if it's breed in there which is different from the other malaria vectors the other reasons why we worry about it is because of that reason it's likely to move into our urban settings and if it does move to our urban settings and you have people for example who are coming out of the malaria endemic areas who live in the city then you're likely to establish malaria transmission in the urban settings if that happens then you're worried for multiple reasons one people who live in urban settings are from all parts of the country some of them are totally naive to malaria they've never had a malaria infection and what what usually happens is that people who've never had a malaria infection have absolutely no immunity so they tend to suffer more severe forms of malaria and so you're likely to see severe malaria anemia in, in a lot of these areas number two we have a very small budget for malaria control as a country and so if you have more people and especially people in urban settings having to get malaria infections then you're finding that currently available for malaria control in rural Kenya will get diverted and that now then get stretches our budget it means that at some point you might actually run out of medicine that is enough for everybody and diagnostic that diagnostic is enough for everyone number 3 this mosquito is a very good vector of both plasmodium falciparum and also plasmodium vivax So Plasmodium vivax was something that as a country we actually report very very low cases of if any at all. But then uh, since the emergence of this vector in the country now we have reports of Plasmodium vivax in Turkana, in Marsabit, in Mandera, coincident with the same areas where we are now seeing this vector Anopheles tifensi. So those are the reasons why we worry about this vector specifically. 
when you say that it has two types of plasmodium, does that mean that it can spread malaria multiple times or different types of malaria? And I haven't quite understood that part. So what we see most common in Kenya is plasmodium falciparum malaria, which is one of the parasites. It's actually the most potent parasite and it's a parasite that we, we have learned how to diagnose, so we have the tools to diagnose it to tell that this is malaria, this is falciparum malaria. And number two, we can manage it very easily using artemisinin in combination therapy, ACTs. Uh, Plasmodium virevax doesn't cause very severe infections, but it has what's called a liver stage. The liver stage means that when this parasite goes into the liver, it is away from the immune system. So it's impossible to target it with, with ACT medication. And so you need another type of medicine to be able to, to kill this parasite. Otherwise, people who have virevax infections will get an infection now. After a short while, even though you give them ACT, they will actually have another infection and it will relapse without them getting a new bite. So you get relapses, so they, you get frequent infections of malaria. So just think about the malaria symptoms. But now you're having them over and over again, you're feeling really bad multiple times, you're not able to work multiple times, based on the same initial infection that you got. Um, so that's what, you, that's what we, we, we call in relapses. And so there's a specific drug known as primaquine that is used to treat it. I don't know that the country, uh, at the moment, we have any doses of primaquine. And then also there's going to be that need to sensitize the communities towards the need to start equipping our pharmacies with primaquine and on how to diagnose glasmodium virus. So those are the things that we, we worry about there. I don't know if that makes sense. That makes sense to me. And you also mentioned about some specific type of mosquito that is in, in the coastal Kenya, the one that you say thrives in, in salty water areas. Is that the type of mosquito that causes dengue fever and chikungunya? You know people are dying of dengue fever right now in Burkina Faso. No, but that's a different type of mosquito. It's not an anopheles mosquito. It's called an Aedes mosquito. Very, very prevalent in the coastal Kenya and parts of northern Kenya. But the mosquito I'm talking about is anopheles meras. It, it also transmits malaria in, in, in coastal Kenya. In Western Kenya, what are some of the things that you're doing to combat malaria infection? So our research is what then feeds into policy. And so what we do at the moment is evaluation of different mosquito control tools. So our focus is usually on mosquito control. Some of the tools we are currently testing. Um, so th- let me just go back a little bit and, and give you a bit of, a bit of information on, on the regulatory process for vector control. So before we get to the point where, so you had, for example, the, the ministry buying bed nets, right? Yes, yeah, sure. That free of charge people who live in the malaria endemic settings. Before that happens, those products need to be approved by or recommended by WHO, World Health Organization. Now, for WHO to recommend a product, it's based on scientific evidence. And so our group collects scientific evidence. And so we do that in, uh, in, in a number of ways. So there's uh, phase one trials, which are basically lab trials, where we try out different products in the lab, try and figure out if they're working in the lab. And if they do work in the lab, then we move on to phase two trials. So phase two trials are conducted in what are known as experimental heart trials. So we have areas where we have very high densities of, of mosquitoes in CIA where we've set up experimental huts. And so often we get people coming to us with mosquito control products and we test them at that site. So that's one of the things that we do. And that's one of the ways that we, we encourage innovation. So people can come with different nets, different insecticides, different repellents, for example, and we test them at, at that facility. The last one is with three trials, which are basically epidemiology trials. So when we have been able to prove that a product is able to prevent either mosquitoes from biting people or to reduce mosquito densities, 
when we try and look for what's known as epidemiological evidence. Epidemiological evidence just means we want to see whether by reducing these mosquito numbers or by preventing mosquitoes from biting people, we actually end up reducing malaria transmission. And so part of what we do, our team does what are known as phase three epidemiology trials, randomized control trials. And so these ones are done in very large areas. So for example, we are currently evaluating two products in randomized control trials. One of those products is known as partial repellents. And so these are devices that you place inside of a house and that house becomes very unconducive for mosquitoes. And so what that does is that it prevents mosquitoes from either coming into the house or from biting people. And so we have 60 clusters, which are basically villages in, in Busia, where 30 of them, we gave them special repellents with the active ingredient. And the other 30, we gave them a product that looks like a special repellent, but it does not have any active. And so we want to compare, we are comparing over a two-year period whether the sites that receive the product with the active will have reduced malaria incident compared to the sites that did not re- receive the special repellent actives. And so actually that, pro- that project is, is now just coming to an end and we have the results. So we have actually been able to prove that the special repellents actually end up reducing malaria even further in, in, in this setting. And that's a very statistically significant finding. And so we, we are submitting our report to WHO um, now as soon as the analysis is complete. And this should potentially be the first site that to prove this. And so when we have results from a second site, the, the product could be recommended by the region. So at that point, the country will actually be able to buy the product and distribute them in um, to people who, are, who live in these uh, areas. The other product we're evaluating at the moment in a randomized controlled trial is known as attractive targeted sugar bait. And so this bait basically relies on the fact that uh, mosquitoes will always want to feed on sugar. And usually in nature, they obtain that from plant juices or plant or flowers. And so this product basically is something that you hang outside of a house. It has a bait, but that bait also has a toxin. And then it has a membrane that covers the product so that non-target organisms like bees don't get access to the bait. And so as mosquitoes land on the bait, they're able to probe through the membrane, they access the bait, but they feed on it, it kills them. And so that's that, that evaluation is currently ongoing in, in CIA, and we want to see whether over a two-year period we'll actually end up reducing uh, malaria transmission. So that study hasn't ended, and so we don't have the results yet. So that's basically um, the way in which we evaluate different vector control products. What about mosquito nets? I mean, are they sort of obsolete? Are they not working anymore? No. So mosquito actually are the, I want to say the primary uh, mosquito control method and that is because um, mosquitoes will most often bite people in the middle of the night as they sleep. And so mosquito nets have actually been very, very, uh, they have contributed to, I want to say, about 60% of the entire reduction in malaria between 2000 and 2015 because of mosquito nets. Uh, 68% actually, that's the figure. Mosquito nets continue to be very effective. They're very helpful. And now that you mentioned mosquito nets, uh, uh, they are actually, they remain very effective. And so all of these new products we're evaluating will be used in addition to mosquito nets. Okay, so people must continue to use the mosquito nets in addition to these new tools. But let me also mention one other concern that is coming up. We've actually just um, written about this in Malaria Journal. Uh, we are also seeing this species of mosquitoes known as Anopheles fenestras. What's happening with that species of mosquitoes is that we actually see that they, in, in the past, they used to bite people in the middle of the night. And so if you had a net over you, you're protected. But now we're seeing that they're shifting in their biting behavior so that they're starting to bite people actually early in the morning and they can bite people as late as 11 a.m. in the morning. So they actually wait for you to get outside of your bed net and then they bite you at that point. 
And so that's one of the reasons why you need new tools to protect people during that time when they're not under their bed nets. But mosquitoes are active. Is that to say that mosquitoes have also sort of known the trick? Exactly. Just so you know, the idea of um, speciation, eh? Charles Darwin and, and the survival of every species is trying to survive, including mosquitoes. They're also trying to survive. And that is the reason why you really want to, um, you, we, we have to keep doing our research to ensure that we up whatever tools that are coming into play will be effective against mosquitoes because mosquitoes are also changing and they're changing a lot to try and survive whatever tools we throw against. Up to this end, have we had any inventions that have been impactful breakthroughs so far? I want to say that the, maybe the biggest breakthrough for mosquito control has, has been bed nets. I mean, bed nets since the year 2000, when we used to have prevalences of almost 80%, bed nets have brought that prevalence down to 40%. So they almost have the entire burden of malaria and, and that bed nets plus indoor residual spray. So those two tools have been very, very, very impactful. We're evaluating new tools, so we hope special repellent is one of those new tools that will also be impactful in this space. But we're also looking at new tools and Looking and also assessing some of the old tools like laviciding, for example, the control of mosquitoes at the larval stage. So we are all we are, we are, we are evaluating all those types of tools to see if any of them would actually be, help to contribute to further reductions in, in malaria in malaria transmission. And from where you stand, what do you think is the future of malaria? Like, are we doing better? I mean, going forward, do you think um, these cases are going to reduce further and further, or we might get some sort of an about and then we have a surge? Good question, um, and my opinion is this. If we don't do anything differently, if we continue to just do everything like we are doing right now, we will have increases in malaria. And honestly, we are already seeing that. Like if you compare the numbers of, of the cases of malaria that were seen in 2020, 2020 versus 2021, versus, um, yeah, 2021, according to the World Malaria Report, there was an increase in cases. So at the moment, we are stagnating. The problem with stagnating or staying at the same level is that it's very hard to stay level at the same level. You are either always going to be reducing malaria or you will see an increase in malaria. And so at the moment we have to try and add additional tools and that's why our research is, is very important in the fight against malaria for us to continue to see additional declines in malaria transmission. Okay, and what could you say is the main or the biggest challenge or impediment to the fight against malaria in Kenya currently? A number of things. Of course, the biggest one would be funding. Um, if we had unlimited access to money, um, all of these tools could be distributed everywhere. So things like indoor residual spraying um, are very effective at reducing mosquito numbers very quickly and therefore reducing malaria burden. But it's very, very expensive to implement indoor residual spraying. Actually, I think it costs about, I want to say, 20 dollars per structure to implement IRS, so it's very, very expensive. And so that's why the government is not able to do it everywhere. One of the challenges is badness. So there's the resistance in um, to, to most of the insecticides that we currently have. Actually, the, the ones that are used on badness mostly. The beauty is there are new nets that are coming up that either combine multiple types of insecticides. So either something called a piperonyl bitoxide, which is a synergist in addition to the pyrethroid bed nets, or new insecticides like clofenapir um, and something else known as periproxifen. So those are new nets that are coming up that we hope we can be able to, to use in, in the areas where we've seen resistance. The problem is those nets are more expensive than the standard bed nets. And so, of course, it's always going to be a, a point of trying to balance and ensure that you have maximum coverage for everyone who's at risk of malaria, while at the same time, 
ensuring that you are able to bring an additional reduction. The beauty of what I do is that the work that I do has contributed to policy around better distribution, policy around indoor residual spraying, and the use of uh, superior insecticides. And I can tell you that Homer Bay is the one county that used to have a prevalence of about 19% um, for malaria as of 2015, but at 2020, Homer Bay had a prevalence of 4%. And that is because of the introduction of indoor residual spraying with organophosphate insecticides, which are much more superior. and. So, I mean, the work that we're doing is actually contributing to reductions of malaria in this setting. Number two, uh, the business that we, we were involved in a lot of evaluation of new types of business. And so some of those superior business have, are currently being distributed in uh, areas like Busia, um, Kakamega and Bungoma in the last campaign. But in this campaign, they're actually being distributed also in Homo Bay. And so those are products of the research that we're doing as a department. So I'm pretty, I'm very, very proud of that. Ah, great, great. What I'd urge people to do is to continue to use their vector control interventions, continue to use their bed net, and where possible, there are basic ways in which you can keep mosquitoes away. For example, things like covering any water container, draining any stagnant water around us, um, slashing of bushes, for example, clearing any, any waste that we have. Those are things that we need to continue to do as a community of practice because they really help to keep away mosquitoes, uh, which are the ones that cause all of this vector-borne vector diseases that we're talking about. Uh, Santa Sana.